Welcome to the Sober by Design podcast, where we explore the many pathways to recovery and a better life through conversations with a wide array of guests. Whether you're sober curious, in recovery, or simply looking to improve your mental health and well-being, this podcast will have something for you. Each week, we sit down with inspiring guests from all walks of life who share their personal stories of struggle and triumph, offering valuable insights and practical advice on how to design a life worth living. From addiction and mental health to spirituality and creativity, we cover a wide range of topics that are relevant to anyone seeking to live a more fulfilling and authentic life. So join us on this journey of discovery, growth, and transformation, and start designing a new life. All right. Okay, everybody, welcome to the Sober by Design podcast. This week, we have a guest, Dan Williams. Um, Dan is here to talk a little bit about his recovery, as well as his uh, real success in the business world, which he found, I think, after he recovered. But I'm going to let him tell that story. And um, welcome to the show tonight, Dan. Hey, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So if you could just start by giving us a little background about where you grew up, how you grew up, and how your journey with alcohol drugs began. That would be great. Absolutely. Absolutely. March 6, 1969, Dan Williams was born on a Navy base in Portsmouth, Virginia. Um, You know, being born into a a Navy family, um, a lot of the military people party down pretty hard. And I grew up literally thinking, like, I in my earliest memories, I can remember, you know, my dad having like a division party and having a whole bunch of sailors over at the house and you know, people just getting drunk. Um, also, my my dad and my mom, they got divorced when I was seven and my sister was five. But they had a very tumultuous um, relationship that was a lot of problems fueled, I'm absolutely sure, by alcohol. But as I grew up, I really thought that part of being an adult was that you got drunk. And I, I mean, it just seemed, you know, I can remember all my grandparents drank. Eh, my grandma, my grandmas didn't, you know, tie it on so much. But my grandpa Williams, Pabst Blue Ribbon and PB and uh, red, white and blue beer. And then uh, my grandpa McClellan, he was a uh, Genesee. And uh, so I, I just can recall my whole life. Beer, 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 beer. When I got into 10th grade. I went to live with my mom and my sister and my stepdad in South Carolina. And I was, uh, before that I had settled in Indiana when my, uh, my grandmother died and my dad and I had to leave Hawaii and go back to Indianapolis to take care of my grandpa. And, um, when I went to South Carolina for my vacation, I, I discovered women, or maybe should I say women girls discovered me. Mm-hmm. So it was a big change. I was also a wrestler. Um, so I was wrestling on the high school team there. And the first week of practice, I broke my leg. I did a spiral fracture on my tibia and fibula. And um, that kind of put me out of wrestling, obviously, for the season as I had to have a surgery and I had a cast on my leg for a really long time. And I, I often wonder, had that not happened, would I have started drinking when I did? Because uh, I, was, I was really dedicated to you know wrestling. But as it stood, I was not wrestling and I had some friends to spend the night and, you know, 
it was also a lot of alcohol at my stepdad and my mom's. As a matter of fact, we had a beer kegerator in the uh, kitchen and, you know, we were, I was allowed to drink in 10th grade. Yeah. So when my leg was broken, I had some friends spend the night over and we took a bottle of vodka and, you know, we just smashed it and I got drunk for the first time. And it just kind of went from there. It just snowballed. And I turned into uh, quite the party boy at that time. Um, how long, and, did that, you know, how long did that last? Oh part. my goodness. So that was in 10th grade. And, you know, I, where this, this crazy ride is of the alcohol. I guess I was 16 years old mm -hmm. and I, and I went to rehab the second time when I was 29. Okay. So we had a, a crazy turbulent ride along the way. Um, I moved back to Indiana and I, I didn't drink quite as much because my dad was a bit more a handle on the situation like you couldn't get away with as much stuff when i lived in south carolina my friends could come over and spend the night we could play quarters in the kitchen that butted up to my mom's room but i think she would tie hers on and go to bed or she was just you know cool i don't know if that's really was cool or not but like she we could make tons of noise and we could play quarters and have a, a full-on party in high school and never get in trouble so um it continued on and until I, when I went to college and when I went to college at Indiana state, that's when things like really, I had my first taste of freedom Go, going back to live with my dad was kind of a little bit more reserved because he was, he had a very good control over everything. You know, you couldn't get away with anything, but when I went to college, it was like the chains were off and I went completely ballistic. Um, I got blackballed from the first fraternity I tried to join because I got uh, kidnapped and I got really drunk. Well, obviously I was in a bar. Mm -hmm. I was drinking Long Island iced teas and 18 years old. Uh, I got kidnapped and I was taken back to their fraternity house. And uh, somebody told me to pee in a Mountain Dew bottle and put it in the fridge. And I did. And it just so happened to be the vice president. And he came down and took a big swig of it the next day. And that got me kicked out of that fraternity. The other fraternity liked me because of that, because that guy was kind of a jackass. So they, um, so I ended up uh, joining Theta Chi, but then I lived in a fraternity house and I just partied. You know, my third semester of school, I got two Fs at DNSE. My parents were like, you know, this is, we're really wasting our money and we can't do this anymore. Now, somewhere along the way of all that, I smoked pot for my first time and, and that was like a terrifying experience. However, you know, the day of, I swore it off. I would never do that again. But the next day I'm like, Hey, where can I get some more of that? Started doing Coke, started doing acid. Like you know, we would take pills by mixing colors, yeah. you know? So you'd be like, Oh, it's Christmas season. So if we can get a green pill and a red pill, we're right in the holiday. Looking back, I mean, Holy crap, like craziness, craziness. So we continue on from there. I, I got booted out of college and I moved to Phoenix was waiting tables, continued partying, just a, a road of destruction. Kind of, I tell you, every relationship that I had with women, um, I would blow it at some point, you know, just it, it's so embarrassing to look back at how, how you acted and how selfish everything was. Mm -hmm. um, 
So I, then I went through a breakup in my early 20s when I was about 21. And I don't know if it was like a control situation or what, but I, I just really, it was terrible and I handled it terrible. And again, it's it, it, anybody who's come from being a, a bad drunk or a drug addict, like you've just, you've done things that were so terrible and so just off-putting and embarrassing, but you know, what can you do? Um, go ahead. No, yeah, you can't do much. I mean, you can make amends where you can, but um, you kind of got to live with those parts of your life, you know, and, and know that they were somebody else. I was talking to, to a friend about this the other day, and he's like, he said something to the effect of, that person made decisions for me that I am now paying for, right? Like, so there were things done by somebody that he feels was a completely different being that he is now living with those decisions at this different stage in life. So it's, it's tough for people. Yeah. So I, when I went through that breakup, I was going out to bars and, um, I would go see this band called Wise Monkey Orchestra in Tempe, Arizona, and they were like a funk band and I would dance and I would have a blast and I'd party with them and I'd meet chicks and, you know, get laid. And it was just, it was awesome. It was a really fun thing. So I decided I wanted to have a band of my own. I went out and I, I chose really great musicians that were local to the area. And we put together this 11 piece funk band that I, and I was not even a musician at the time. I just knew that I enjoyed being on this side. And if I could get ladies on this side, if I was the guy on the stage, it was going to be even easier. So that was really my my, my um, whole reason behind it. Um, but that was a, a great time. We, you know, years and years we did that. I toured all over the Southwestern U.S. And kind of one of, one of the things as I look back throughout my life, uh, when I wrestled, I was never really a champion but I really tried harder than anybody else on the team. I would go to school every day before wrestling and I would run. Um, I would make my friends that I was wrestling against mad because they're like, hey, we're in practice. Why are you going full speed? And I was mm -hmm. like, it was everything that I do. So when I started playing music, when I started drinking and drugs, like everything that I've done, I put every bit of effort into. Um, so the music was really great. Um, I eventually... I kind of got fired from that band, you know, towards the end of my drinking. And I guess if I go back and look at it, the first time I got fired from a job was when I was 21 years old. It was Red Lobster. And um, by the time I was 29, when I went to rehab my second time, I had been fired 22 times. Uh, you know, they send you that thing where you get um, from the from the federal government where it shows how much money you paid in taxes every year or how much you you know made yeah. there was years where i was making two and three thousand dollars <laughs> like in, in my dad you know god rest his soul he died about 12 years ago um he always would just kind of bail me out and enable me yeah just a spoiled i was a spoiled douche you know i wouldn't have money to pay my bills he co-signed for a car so i never had car payments so he had to pay for it i wouldn't have money for my rent or my phone and he would just give me money it was in hindsight it was the worst thing that he could have done it seemed like he was always throwing me a life a life preserver mm -hmm. that i really did not deserve yeah. um so tons of crushed relationships tons of just bad 
bad things, you know, things that we look back on now. And I'm just like, I can't even believe that, that, that I would do things like that. Or I'm just, and I think it really, a lot of it comes down to being ultimately selfish. The only thing that matters is getting your fix of whatever you need to get and really nothing else matters. Um, yeah. And it's just a, a terrible, terrible way to live. Yeah. I mean, just thinking of what you kind of laid out there, you obviously you grew up in the military, right? And it sounded like you bounced around a little bit. You, you had mentioned Virginia, Hawaii, mm -hmm. Indiana, South Carolina. Your parents were divorced, right? Mm -hmm. um, so there was like a little, I had a little bit of that chaos in my childhood, not nearly as much as you. I, I moved within one state with my divorced parents, right? So like we confined it to one state pretty much. Um, so you had that going on and then you had this sort of, you know, all gas, no break personality, right? Like that's who you were. You were all gas with your wrestling. So before you found alcohol, you were on this path, as you said, to be like a wrestler, maybe not champion, but you were going to give it all the gas. Once that went away, you just found something else and gave it all the gas for a while. And that's what we do. I mean, I think people like us tend to have some sort of, you know, either, you know, we're going to have that gene, right? They say there's a gene for it. But I also think there's a lot of it like that chaos, kind of how we maybe grew up. There's a lot of parts to, you know, why people end up where they do. Um, and, and the same thing goes for recovery. So like you at 29, you said it was your second stint in rehab that that was the one. What what was the first stint in rehab? What brought you to rehab the first time? Like, what was your first entry into, like, this is not working, or did somebody put you there? Like, how did that go down? Well, I ended up, I, I went to um, a county-run detox, so it wasn't a fancy rehab facility. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, you're, you're in there on a sliding scale. I was playing music, and I think I pissed my girlfriend off again, and my band was pissed off. Everybody's, everybody's always pissed off at me. I, it, I was to the point where I would wake up and I'd be like, somebody would say you did something or do you remember doing this? And I'd be like, meh, if I had to wait, if I had to go around apologizing for people that are pissed off at me, uh, I would spend my whole day apologizing. So eh, whatever, you know, that was my attitude. Like I, yeah. meh. Um, the first time I went, <laughs> I, I just went in, I think I was in there for five or six days. Um, you know, you when you're drinking really hard, I and, and I did, like I said, all kinds of drugs. But the only thing that really, really affected me and, and tore me down was the alcohol. That was my one thing. Like, you know, if I was, I couldn't do tweak all the time because I, I did occasionally have a job that I had to go to and I, I couldn't be out of my tree like that. But I could certainly go to work drunk. Silly. Um, and I went in there and um, I remember as I was detoxing, I was really, really anxious. And I told them and they gave me some kind of a little pill. I don't know what it was. It was so tiny. Mm -hmm. It was so tiny. And it made me a zombie for uh, for like 24 hours, like where I was like, basically just sitting and drooling. And I, I said, I don't need any more of that one. But what happened was I after I left uh, detox, I went right back into my life. Yeah. And so going right back into bars to play music and hanging out, um, 
you know, that sobriety maybe lasted for a month mm-hmm. and, you know, not a, not a big God person either. So like AA, even though I've done plenty of it, um, the higher power thing and, and myself don't really work, but we'll get to that part. Cause that's maybe one of the most inspiring, cool parts of, of my story. Um, then I, I just kind of went back in and of course, I think you probably know, um, as it progresses, it just gets worse and worse. So, you know, you you come back off of, of like level seven and then as soon as you start back up you're already at level eight it's just like it would just worse um finally i just got into a point where i had lost my job again i gotten evicted from my apartment i had a roommate named allison and she gave me her rent money and of course i went and blew that at the bar and uh, never paid the rent. So we got evicted. She was not happy with me about that (laughs) at all. Not at all. Um, So I was like living in my van down by the river in like kind of couch surfing. And, you know, yeah, I had gotten to a point where I was, I was seriously, I, I had no money. And I was, I was kind of willing to do whatever whatever it would take to do yeah. <laughs> to get a drink it was everything was all you know all bets were yeah. it was all on the table ridiculous um i often think i'm really glad one of the most fortunate things about you know i'm 54 years old thank goodness there was no cell phones and social media during my heyday because that stuff would still be there to haunt me um, I never got arrested. Don't know how that happened. I um I actually totaled a car one day in, in rush hour traffic. Um, two cracks in the frame. I to this day I was blacked out. I have no idea what happened. Uh, my insurance. I you know told the insurance at the time that uh, somebody pulled out in front of me and I wrecked and they, yeah. it all got covered. Like everything just always seemed to work out. You know, so I never had to pay that price. Um. I see a lot of guys now maybe that are that have a problem and I think boy if if you were filmed and you had to face that reality of how horrible you were would that make you would that have made me stop sooner I think it would but but again I don't know maybe I would just have that same attitude of like eh whatever second time I went to detox again I was homeless everything had fallen apart um and I remember the day that it happened I, I was when to a bar by myself and I was um I was walking around the pool table and I was I was taking a leak on the pool table as I was walking around it like I, I don't even know how classless and tacky that is terrible uh, and then I, I got back over to my friend's house who was going to let me sleep on his couch and um it was probably two in the morning and I, I just something clicked in me and I'd hit my limit and he he, I called my stepmom. My dad was away at a police convention thing that he was at. And, um, and uh, my stepmom came and got me and somehow got me back into the county run detox again. Mm-hmm. And, and that time it stuck after, after I went through detox, instead of going back to my live my life, because I was I had nowhere to live, everything had fallen apart. Um, I went and lived in a halfway house for six months. And, you know, then you got to get a job and, and put some structure into your life. Um, my dad was a mailman. And he he got me into the house incorporated in Mesa, Arizona, which was on his mail route. Uh, Gary Gaskin was the uh, 
the head of that place. Super, super nice guy. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he, he obviously, when you go in there, my dad was like, yeah, I'll pay for his uh, rent because you had to pay money. And, and Gary was like, nope, he'll get a job and he'll do that himself. You know, he basically made that cutoff happen and made me have to, you know, get up and make my bed and have responsibilities and do all the stuff. Um, I was the the only person that was allowed because after a couple months, I got back into my band. So I started going back into bars and playing music. But I had um, I'd really crossed over the threshold of if people think that you that I can't do something, it's only going to make me strive that much harder to prove them wrong. Mm -hmm. And I had already kind of made my mind up with that. Um, so here's probably one of the biggest moments that happened to me in the entire recovery thing. I was in, um, in the halfway house and we would have to have meetings. We'd have to have, go to NA meetings and AA meetings and stuff. And, um, so we had one in our house and everybody had to sit in a big circle. There was probably 15 people, maybe 20 people. Like there's a main house with rooms in it and there's a couple of auxiliary houses and it was in a neighborhood. And, um, you had to go around the room and say what God meant to you. Mm -hmm. So everybody's going around and they're saying their thing and it gets to me and I'm like, well, man's greatest fear is death. And, you know, they made uh, deities so people would have something to look forward to and be able to control people. I said my whole spiel and I looked up and everybody was just staring at me basically with like their jaw agape there. Like couldn't believe what I was saying. And the guy who was running, who was the head of that halfway house, that one in particular, his name was Jim. And he said to me in front of all of these people, if you cannot find and accept Jesus Christ into your life, you're never going to be able to stay sober. Mm -hmm. And um, that was a punch in the gut, you know, like it, it was a pretty heavy moment. After that meeting was over, this fella named Andy came up to me and I'm friends with him on Facebook. I found him on Facebook, this guy, Andy. He came up to me and he said, hey, I have this book that I want you, I, I think that you would really be interested in. And he handed me this book and it was called Rational Recovery by Dr. Jack Trimpey. So I started reading this book and like it completely engrossed me. I, I mean, to this day, I, in my opinion, if you have uh, an issue of any kind of any kind of an addiction um, the mentality of this book to me makes sense whatever works for anybody then more power to you i know it doesn't matter because it's what works for you but not being heavy in the higher power side of stuff um it, it said basically you don't have to have this stigmatism of being an alcoholic you know you're somebody who drank um and it explains it is you have an inside part of your brain Mm -hmm. that says that you're hungry and thirsty and, and makes you have desires and you have the outside part of your brain where you can make a decision. So as a rational adult, I should be able to say, I'm never going to drink again for the rest of my life. Now, when I would say that at first, it would give me butterflies in my stomach and I would feel nervous and like, I felt like it was unfair, but, but, uh, but I could say that. And I, uh, you know, and then it would say, What's going to happen to you for the rest of your life is your inside part of your brain, they call it your addictive voice, is always going to try to trick you to get what it wants. So for instance, I just crossed 25 years since I quit drinking. Congrats. On June 3rd. Thank you. So if I, would, if I were to think, okay, I've been sober for 25 years. Now that I've made it this long, I probably could be okay. So I'm going to celebrate and have a, a drink. 
that would be my addictive voice trying to trick me to get what it wants because but i already have made the decision that i'm never going to do that again so like when you can recognize that voice trying to do that to you and i've i've seen it happen i've felt it so many times it almost makes it so i can just like go nope not today buddy and yeah. and i can take control back um but and for me that has been game changer i i've you know i quit smoking cigarettes the same way a few years later um, but with the exact same mentality. That's awesome. Yeah, I've not heard of that book. And listen, that's a great tool. I mean, even for people who have a lot of recovery, just to th kind of have that switch, right? To to think about it as this inner voice that's going to try to trick you. And I, and I think a lot of us do think that way. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that you said about your recovery that resonate with me. And I just want to touch on them one like the fact that you went to the detox and then recognize that going home was a bad idea i think is huge because so many people just will go to a rehab they'll spend 30 days away and then they'll just go home and think like this was going to work out and it doesn't because you're just putting yourself back into the same circumstances you know have and you know to to the other extent like if you have a family there that's kind of enabling and supporting those people should be getting some sort of help so like the fact that your dad was told no you're not paying rent like there was a lot of things that happened at that moment for you that i think are huge um the aa thing i went i started out in aa and i definitely had a higher power problem when when i went in and you know my therapist would tell me like well it could just be like the ocean or you know just say something right like whatever your higher power is assign it to something it's just got to be bigger than you and i really struggled with that whole idea um mm -hmm. you know where i went luckily i didn't get a lot of that feedback like it has to be religious although i was going to churches mostly for these meetings um but i did have a lot of people in those rooms say things like if i didn't do it their way i was going to drink again and to me that messaging in those rooms is pretty pervasive and dangerous, right? Like there's somebody there, like you were new in recovery still, and somebody's going, if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to drink again, is dangerous language for somebody who's trying to be, you know, sober and probably hanging on by the tips of their fingers. And it is a very old time and and people probably hate that I say this, but it's like an old time mentality, right? Like I had a good friend of mine who had some recovery time and he kind of said the same stuff to me. If you keep doing that, you're just going to drink again. You're going to drink again. And here I am 10 years later, 11 years later, right? Perfectly fine. And I didn't follow his path. Like his path worked for him. My path worked for me. Your path works for you. And we all got to be okay with that. Right. It's like the fact that that guy was like, he's just trying to control you a little bit. Right. Like he wanted you to follow his path and, and Jesus was his path and it worked for him. So therefore, it's going to work for Dan, which is nonsense, really. Right. You know, it's just nonsense. And it's it's dangerous nonsense, though. And that's, you know, that is one of the shortcomings of of that that group, I think. Um you know, because you could get hooked up with the wrong 
sponsor. There's a lot of things that can go a little sideways. And I just, listen, I think it's, a again, the 12 steps, if you look at them and you live by the 12 steps, sober, not sober, you're going to be a good person, right? They're good ways to live. But how those get taught in certain rooms can be dangerous. That's what I- You know what I- what I really didn't dig about it, and I went to, believe me, I've been to a lot of meetings yeah. because, you know, and all of that stuff. And and I think that it's very, very valuable just to go be around these other people. Sure. But one of the things that I found a little off-putting sometimes with it is um, it depended on which meeting you went to. Like, they were very clicky, you know? Oh. So I... And yeah. of course, you know, human nature, you're going to want to pick up on women there. And that's probably a terrible thing to, you terrible. know, it's almost like you, yeah. So the, in, in the clickiness of it and. I had women I, try I to t- pick you. me up, which was terrible. You know, I'm a married guy and, you know, like I got weird vibes from women in the program. So it's like, that is a whole nother dynamic there too. That's a little bit, I don't know. You just got to be careful. Like a community. All that connection, all that stuff is great. But with anything, you got to be careful. And like the fact that you took that message in and then somebody in that room was like, hey, read this book. Like there was a lot of little lucky things that happened in a short amount of time for you to to hit your stride. And I'm thankful for that. I'm sure you're super thankful for that. But like just all those little things that could have gone a different way just kind of fell in your direction, you know? You know, I, um, I, people have always, I've, how I never got a DUI, how I never got arrested, how I never seriously injured myself. Um, I've always been very lucky. I don't know if it's just the tenacity to keep getting up, even when I get punched in the face and keep driving forward or what, but it's, um, so you come out of that halfway house, right? You're there for about six months you obviously had kind of this week of destruction behind you. How, you know, what did that look like for the short amount of time after? Like, how did you get back on your feet? How did you start living differently? Like, I know you said you, you know, you wanted to be in the band again and all these things. Like, did it just start to click immediately? Was, was there like a, you know, was it a media, like a meteoric, a meteor, shooting you know across the sky like did you just fly right into success or did was it a slow climb one of the things that probably this is kind of funny but one of the things that really made me stronger through this whole thing is seeing other people mess up anybody who messed up got booted out of that halfway house i had a i went to play music in a bar and this guy named james went with me and while i was on stage playing music he got drunk and so we had to go back to the halfway house. He was in a different one, dropped him off. He got booted the next day. I, don't, I wonder, I to this day wonder what happened to that guy. Um, so when I got out, I um, had a friend named Wendy, a little lesbian chick, and she was a tweaker and she was trying to get off tweak. Mm-hmm. And um, one of my friends, Mike Johnson, who was in the halfway house with me, he was, uh, he was a heroin addict. So we got a, a house together, the three of us, a drunk, a tweaker, and a heroin addict. So uh, maybe three weeks into it, we had to kick him out mm-hmm. because we would come home and he'd have a rig on the table and just be nodded out. And we're like, dude, we're trying to get sober here, you know? Um, and it, he only lasted about another month and a half or two months before he OD'd and was dead. Oh, um, so 
terrible, terrible sad. And then I had another really great friend named James, um, who I'm still friends with on Facebook, and he lives in Phoenix still. Um, and he's he's also has done great and married and kids and good good stuff. Good stuff to see. Good for the heart. Um, so I I lived in with this Wendy chick, and I worked in a restaurant. Obviously, I started dating somebody pretty quick, I'm playing music again. But I I was. You know, I recall being at a bar called Sail In, setting up to play music, and my friend Patrick came up to me, and he's like, are you drinking yet? And I'm like, nope. And he's like, oh, you'll be back. And again, if somebody tells me I can't do something, it just gives me more power. If you, if I watch people get kicked out, I'm like, I'm not going to be that guy. If this guy tells me I'm going to drink again, I'm not going to do it just to prove him wrong. Um, about a year afterwards, within a year, my band decided that we were good. They let me back in full time and uh, we moved to San Diego. So we we're trying to, you know, be rock stars. Mm -hmm. um, so we moved out here. Uh, I was the only person to move out here with a job. We got rid of our horn section. So we went down to a five piece band instead of a nine piece band. Um, I was, we all kind of, um, I had a van, so I lived in the van for a little bit as we kind of got settled in. Um, and I got a really cool place right on the beach. I had my girlfriend at the time moved to San Diego with me. And, you know, I just started building building my life. Uh, going out didn't really seem to be as important anymore. I'd go play music in a bar and then go back home, watch some television, be a bit more mellow. Lived right on the beach in Ocean Beach. Um, then she left about maybe a year after that or within a year, probably it wasn't very long. And um, I just, you know, went through some depression times, really trying to feel my feel where I was supposed to be or what I was doing. I, I, I was kind of lost and I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, I was being pressured by my family to take a manager job. I was working at a Joe's Crab Shack okay. and, um, you know, I was in my early thirties at this point, And I just, I, I was over waiting tables. You know, I didn't want to bring people some iced tea anymore or run around like a, <laughs> for a $5 bill. Yeah. Um, it just, and I didn't want to go into management because restaurant management, uh, while my brother, my stepbrother and my sister are both that job, I, I do not envy them at all. It just, it's a glorified babysitting position working with. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I had bought a, a new truck and uh, my buddy Don, his next door neighbor had a detailing business, mm -hmm. a mobile detailing business. And um, he saw my new truck and he was like, hey, I will put a paint sealant on that truck for you for, I think it was like $300. And I was like, okay. He's like, same stuff they do at the dealership. I was like, okay, cool. So I watched him do it. And I, I was thinking to myself, hmm, I, you know, he just made 300 bucks to do this. It took him like two hours. I'm like, I could do that. I've always been a kind of tidy person. He let me ride with him for two days and I had $1,100 saved up. I went to the detail supply store and I bought, uh, I bought a vacuum, um, some towels, some soap, you know, $1,100 worth of stuff, yeah. a little generator. And um, I started detailing cars on my two days off. I was I made the schedules I was like the head waiter so on Thursdays and Fridays I would detail cars and as I got more work detailing cars I worked less at the restaurant I probably worked seven days a week for seven for a year for at least a year 
until I got down to like, um, I only worked Saturday and Sunday and I had a customer who wanted me to come do their cars on Saturdays. So I told my managers at the restaurant and they said, Dan, it's time for you to go live your dream. <laughs> it's time, you know? Um, and so I, I just really, again, once again, poured everything in me into the detailing business, just became obsessed with having my own business. Um, and, you know, of course, at first, not having any business sense, I, I really didn't know what I was doing. I was just very passionate about the detailing side of cars. Um, and then a few years into it, um, I started going to trade shows in our industry. And there's like a really great community of detailers. And um, I started learning the business side of things and and so darn many opportunities because you're working for a lot of really affluent people when you have a detailing business. Yeah. You know, it's not poor people aren't coming to get their cars done by a detailer. They're going through a drive through car wash. Sure. And um, so there's just so many opportunities that started presenting themselves. And I have always, always been the guy who if there's an opportunity in front of me, I'm going to look into it. I'm going to take that opportunity. Um. So the business just kept getting bigger and bigger. Um, I was at a trade show called SEMA. It's like the really big one for cars in Las Vegas uh, by myself one year. And um, uh, the company whose products that I was using was there. And uh, I just kind of stood behind the booth and started answering questions for customers. The next year, that guy asked me to come back and he paid for me to go to SEMA. And um, I had a customer who is a real estate lawyer who just bought and sold houses all the time. I took care of his sailboat and his Mercedes and I told him I wanted to buy a house and he started sending me to look at houses and he bought a house in San Diego for $125,000 of foreclosure in 2008 and carried the paper for me. And um, I came in and did improvements to it and refied into a regular 30 year fixed mortgage. And, you know, I owe, I owe like $130,000 on this house. I built an apartment on it. Um, you know, it's worth seven fifty, eight hundred thousand now. Yeah. You know, just so these opportunities that kept happening, and I just kept taking advantage of them and growing the business. Uh, I was offered a position with the company uh, who I I went to. I was a regional manager, and I worked my way up to vice president of business development at that company. Um, I built a dealership program from the ground up for an F&I program to sell ceramic coatings through dealerships with compliant warranties. And then um, one of my customers was in Omaha, Nebraska named Damon Gray. And he's my, he's one of my business partners now. Okay. And he had a detail shop called owner's pride and um, they were my customer and we were doing dealership stuff together and I was supplying them. I'd go out there and I do training classes for them. Well, they eventually decided that they wanted to have their own detail chemical company in addition to this detail shop. And they offered me an equity position to come and be a part of it. I had a lot of connections and a really uh, a good idea of a roadmap of how to put one of these programs together. Um, so I was valuable to them and gosh, we launched this company three weeks before COVID shut the world down. Okay. So I was definitely doubting my decision when everything got shut down thinking, okay, I just left a job that was paying me to be a part of this company and we're going to go under before we even start. But we had exponential growth right through COVID and um, the detail industry is surprisingly resilient. Yeah. yeah. And we're coming up on four years now and uh, we're just year over year growing and growing. Everybody's kind of in their own lane doing business. And I'm 
I've got a, a good woman that I've been with for 20 years and my goodness, some good dogs. Life is good. Yeah, that sounds great. I think, um, I think I might've mentioned it when you reached out, but, um, the, the detailing part caught my eye because, uh, my boys, so I have two boys, I have an 18 year old and a 11 year old and the 11 year old is very entrepreneurial in spirit, right? So like he had this idea that he wanted to start a business in our neighborhood and he was going to go, I think he wanted to mow lawns. And then his older brother's like, no, we should detail cars. And so then they all started like figuring out what that meant. And, you know, they went and bought all the stuff and they're doing test runs on detailing cars. So like they are going and trying to learn how to do it um, together, M you know, and obviously my 18 year old is doing a lot more of the physical labor than the 11 year old. So he's surprisingly good at stuff. Um, so when you had reached out and I was like, oh, this is, you know, super interesting that you went that direction and have built a whole life around it. Um, you know, yesterday my son was doing my wife's car and he was so frustrated. He was just like, this, you know, and I said, nothing is easy, right? It's it's hard, like this is hard work. And there's a reason that people pay, pay a premium for that service because it's difficult, you know, and it's it takes time and it's gonna take time to learn that craft. And But if you do, you can make a, 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 a living doing it. And uh, so I think it's great that you found your niche, um, you know, and you didn't waver through it, right? As you found success, it's kind of easy to go like, yeah, th like you said, things are going well. I can take a, a swerve right now and it's still going to be going well. But like you knew, no, like I have to stay on this path. I have to keep not drinking even though things are going great, right? And every step along the way, like you, you took the opportunity. You didn't focus so much on what could go wrong. You tend to focus on what was going right. And like, that's how you've built your, your business, which I think is awesome. Yeah. And, and seriously, I, you know, we work with, uh, detailers, uh, our bread and butter for our company is business to business. So supplying detail companies with ceramic coatings, compliant warranties, and, and we do, you know, business coaching. It's the detail industry, like who would have thought when you started, when I started washing cars, that it would lead to all of this in my life. But when the 2008, when the financial downturn happened from the housing market collapse, that was the year I bought a house. It was a foreclosure. Mm -hmm. I explained that. Um, when COVID hit, the detail companies that we work with made more money through COVID than they ever made in their career. With the implementation of uh, paint protection film and ceramic coatings, like it's a very viable business now. And um, gosh, the guy who, you know, Dustin, who bought my business for me, I actually sold the detailing business that I had, which is kind of a, a neat thing in its own right. But he's grown the company so much more. I believe him and two employees are going to break $600,000 gross this year, which, you know, that's just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's awesome. You know, and uh, <clears throat> something I didn't even know about, really. Like, I knew about it, but it wasn't, like, a, a thing for me. I, I'm a car wash guy, maybe, you know? It's like, and, uh, but now that my kids are into it, I'm I'm kind of into it. So, 
they you know man if they're starting this early i mean we do have a couple guys we just signed up a kid who's 17 years old he's still in high school and we had another guy who was 16 when he started but like they have a real business with a business license you know some insurance oh yeah and like a real real business and i think if you start that early holy macaroni i don't even know where you're gonna end up it's gonna be good i i went to get take out the other night with my 11 year old and we passed something and it was a it was like a tax place h&r block or something like that and it said something about small businesses and he was like wait a second and he like went to the window to read like the services that they offered like he's like i was looking for insurance you know and it's like that's my that's the 11 year old looking for insurance for his business you know there's it was, it was a very surreal moment like it's not where i thought things would go but they have and uh you know, but I think your story is so interesting because, you know, all along the way, you could have just, you know, just a very different kind of story, right? You're playing in bars, you're in a band, like you really put yourself right in the belly of the beast. Even the restaurant stuff, I mean, the, the instance of addiction and substance use in restaurants is like so high, you know, it's just that lifestyle. And you did that and then you're like but at the same time you're building this other business you saw it going on and and now you're you know you have your own business you're like you said you're out there uh coaching other people you've really positioned yourself well and and come out of a a hard you know what did you drink from 16 to 29 ish that's you know yeah it's a good amount of time you know you 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 got sober a little bit before I did I did 18 to 35 i think somewhere right in there so a couple extra years but you know it's tough it is and gosh i don't know maybe when you look back do you feel like it was just like if you really kind of break it down in your own head i really think it was just the greed and selfishness was the main thing like i all i wanted to do with and it becomes your identity like to sit in a bar i used to go sit in a bar and i'd order two bombay sapphires on the rocks with a splash of roses lime it's a gimlet but i had to say it like that Mm -hmm. i had to have one leg up in the air i don't know it was crazy i take the first one i'd pound it all the way down i'd set it down i'd pick up my second one and sip it like i just thought that was so cool and then i would say oh look it's a wild dan and it's natural habitat like Mm -hmm. i just had all these little things that i thought were you identify so much with who you are and what what kind of beer you drink and the, like the brand. And I, 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 thank goodness though, we took care of this and got it out of our system at, at an earlier age. I, you know, I see people now that are in their forties, fifties and beyond who still have a terrible problem. And it just gets grosser and ickier the yeah. older you get when you're in your twenties it's a you're a train wreck but that's when you're supposed to be a train wreck yeah yeah i pushed it a little bit past it and and to your point it was like an an identity thing right like so it became an identity um i made my own beer you know i was like the beer guy and it just it, looking back it was it was selfishness it was I, a bit of you know wrapped up in my identity and then you know also just kind of for me drinking to cover like an uncomfortableness or a bad feeling like you know it was a way to wash out all the feelings right like i didn't actually feel much during that period of time you know now i feel everything all the time 
you know, I feel the real happy moments. I feel the really awful moments. And there's been plenty of those. But, you know, back then it was a, a way to cover that. And, um, you know, it's it's hard when you have to come out and feel everything. But you learn how to deal with it. Now, I, now I will say I've seen a lot of people who, you know, I have one person who's there at, at definitely at an arm's length. That's one of my wife's friends who's a terrible alcoholic and she's a therapist. And mm. it's just, it's, it's so disgusting. So disgusting. And, and all of her friends, they're like, Oh, let's do a, a in, intervention with her, this or that, or like maybe until a person is ready to stop, there is nothing that you can do. Right. And, may, and maybe we agree or maybe we disagree on no, this. No, no, it's 100% true. You have to hit whatever your rock bottom is. Because like I said, my dad would always throw me a lifeline. Mm-hmm. He would always bail me out every time. And until I got cut off by my family, cut, had nowhere to live, cut off by my friends, fired from my band, like literally nothing going on. Like life got super, super shitty. But if that would have not happened, I don't think I ever could have quit. And that's a, a sad thing. And you, you see people and it, and the part of the selfishness and you don't care when you're in the middle of it is you're destroying so many other people and hurting people's feelings and making people worry. And I feel terrible for how much I made people worry. Um, but none of that mattered. And, and, and you see people want to try to do something to help somebody. But again, until they get to whatever that bottom is for them, I, I think there's absolutely no way to climb out. Maybe you can stop for a minute. I used to be like, oh, well, I'm going to take, I'm going to boil my liver because, you know, I really got to take a break or, yeah. you know, you take a, a day off of drinking or something like it was a big to do, like not drinking today. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of people who are in it who, you know, contemplate it, you know, so maybe they start thinking about it and then they might have a misstep, uh, you know, they, they try, you know, they go to an AA meeting, they stop drinking for a week, they go back and then they contemplated some more. And, you know, the hope is that over time something clicks, right? Like they can just mentally know that they've hit the end. Um, the worst case is like something physical happens that makes them hit the end, right? Like a, like a huge wreck or a DUI or, you know, whatever it is like that's, that's worst case scenario. Um, but yeah, people are going to stop when they want to stop. That's kind of what I've figured out. Um, and then hopefully they can find the tool that works for them. You know, halfway house, detox, rehab, meetings, a book, you know, podcasts. There's tons of tools out there now. I think that that's one of the greatest things of the internet. I'm not a huge I, I oscillate on my love of the internet, right? Like I, I love the, the streaming music and the, um, you know, Netflix and, but like social media has its ups and downs for me. But one of the things that I like about social media is the connection that you can have to people in recovery, you know, and, and I think that's a huge thing for, uh, some people who maybe can't drive, right? Like I've worked with people who are trying to get to meetings. They can't drive, They've lost their license. They don't have a car. They don't. They maybe don't have a house, but they have a smartphone, so they can jump on social media. They can jump on an online meeting, and that's you know one of the benefits of living in twenty twenty three. 
Yeah, I'll say even even my days that are terrible, you know, even a bad day now, like it would be so much worse. It, it could be so much worse. Oh, yeah. Like even my bad days are, are better than than those days. Um, yeah. You know, sometimes you think back and you kind of think some of the crazy, wacky things that you did were funny. But but again, so many terrible things, bad decisions, embarrassing things that. Hmm. Yeah. And you nope. wouldn't have all the things you have now, right? You wouldn't have your wife. And Shit, you wouldn't I'd have be your, dead. Yeah. You wouldn't have your <laughs> business and you wouldn't be able to help that 17 year old kid start a business or the, you know, like there's so many things that we get to do now that are just because we decided not to drink. Like it's, it seems so simple and it's like such a profound change in, in our lives. Um, I don't think about all the things I do now very often, but like if I look back and did like a, a chart, like the, the the good that's happened in the time that I've been sober totally outweighs all the all the bad stuff. Like that's how I try to think about it. Like, yes, I did awful things, but so much good's happened since I got sober. Like I feel like the scale's tipping in the right direction and probably the yeah. same for you. I'd be, I, I don't... Honestly, I don't even think that I could go back to drinking. Like I, I would be, it, it's so far removed from me and maybe it's cause it's 25 years, but I mean, it is, there's nothing in me that would want to go back to that way of life. There's nothing that I'd look at people who are drunk and think that they look cool. I, it's just a waste of time. It's, it's, like I have, nope. par- I have parties at my house. My wife will drink and we have people over and, you know, sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll stay out there and, uh, and then there's a tipping point and I'll be like, all right, this party just got like, there's too many drunk people around. I'm going to go inside and I watch TV and the party can continue and I'm inside. I mean, it's, it's fine. You know, like if that's how people want to do it, I'm, that's their choice for me. Um, but I know it's, it's not, you know, it's not my choice. I couldn't do it. Um, it's also really bad for you physically. Like it is just a bad substance, right? So there's like a lot of downsides to it. Um, yeah. I'm just Yeah. Towards the end of the drinking, I was like all puffy, you know, like you look back at pictures, my neck and my face were all puffy and I probably, I lost probably like 15 pounds. Like I just melted it it off when I quit drinking. Interesting thing for probably about two or three years, I had to have a dessert every time I ate food. Of course. I think it was for the sugar that I was missing from the, but I literally, if I had a dinner, I had to have some kind of a dessert after it. Oh yeah. I lived on Swedish fish. I've said that a couple of times. Like (laughs) it was just like what I did. I ate them all day, every day for, I don't know, eight months. Um, it was just like that sugar balance was off or something. And, uh, yeah, that's definitely what that's about. Um, I saw something yesterday that totally made me kind of made my skin crawl a little bit. I, somebody was, you know, they're doing a benefit for stomach cancer, which I think is a great thing. That's not what made my skin crawl, but they, they put out a a post on Instagram looking for alcohol donations for this fundraiser. And I just kept thinking like, probably not the, like 
alcohol causes cancer and like do you really need the alcohol there like i don't know like i for some reason it was like in my head like we just serve alcohol everywhere right like maybe we don't need that there right like maybe that's not the place for alcohol maybe a baby shower is not the place for alcohol like maybe the two-year-old birthday party not a place for everybody to be having wine like it's just so prevalent in our society though that it's it's such a hard disconnect for people to make um it's like again like you said you grew up with it it's what you thought you had to do as a kid to be an adult and that's like ingrained in us so my my you know my mom and my sister and they, they still tie it on pretty good they're big they drink smoke cigarettes they they tie it on and um it they kind of don't like to necessarily be around me. I think that they think that I'm judging them and maybe I am a little bit because, you know, when they do really start to catch that buzz, it's just, oh, I can't be around it. Yeah. can't be around it. Yeah. Um, well, and it's, it's, it's just sad. It is. It is. So I know that we're coming up on time and I love to ask people uh, one final question at the end. And it's really about, I'm a big music guy, movies, TV. I love media. I think it's super cool. I've loved it since I was a kid. Um, do you have anything that you are, you know, taking in now, media, be it podcast, be it book, just some recommendations of what, you know, you're listening to or watching right now? Well, I, I'm obsessed with business books, um, but it's, kind of like I feel, you know, I tell a lot of the guys that I do coaching with and stuff. If you, it, so many people that are in the detailing world side, they focus so hard on the art side of polishing a car and they want to be the best paint polisher when really you got to learn how to do business. So I'm absolutely obsessed. I try to digest a new business book every month. I'm trying to put more information in. I, I gobble it up. Um, as far as the I watch, we watch a lot of YouTube. Okay. Um, so we'll watch, you know, little news clips and stuff on YouTube. I always do that. And then, and then Netflix. Um, current, currently, we're watching SWAT okay. and, um, and, uh, uh, oh my goodness, uh, something about some hospital thing. Okay. Uh, I, I'm not sure what it's called. A little Hondo. Uh, Hondo. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Angel always says Honda. I don't know why, but that's hilarious to us. Um, I, I do a lot of, um, I make a podcast, so I don't really watch too many other people's podcasts yeah. because I, I'm, you know, busy making my own. Um, that's called Owner's Pride Podcast. We do an episode called Behind the Buffer um, where we interview people who are in our authorized installer network. Um and then the the regular podcast itself is like an hour long. It's on video as well as audio. Cool. Um, I I bring in not only people from in the detail world, but also small business. We've brought in authors. I've had Mike Michalowicz, Joey Coleman, Marcus Sheridan. Um, I've had Alan Sir Jr. who won the Indianapolis yeah. 500 a couple times. Paul Page, the voice of the 500. So we bring in a lot of bigger names uh, with the whole idea of really exposing our brand name to a wider audience than just the world of detailers so it's uh really anything auto enthusiast you're gonna love it that's cool awesome yeah well i uh swat is on our tv our younger son likes squat swat so i don't know why um but he's a hondo fan 
Um, so. It's a fun show. I love that they use the um, original music from like the '70s show yeah. of it in for their uh, their theme song. Yeah, is, so I've caught a, I've caught a couple episodes. Um, <clears throat> Super cheesy. Yeah, but it's, it's awesome. It's good. It's it's fine. You know, to to be into that. I um, I don't really have anything this week that I've been doing new. Um, you know, I try to bring something new every week to the table. It's hard, right, to bring a new TV show or songs. Like, but we did start watching episodes of Young Sheldon. Like, I wasn't a Big Bang Theory guy, but Young Sheldon is like, I guess, the main character on the Big Bang Theory. Him growing up as a kid. And so I've caught a couple episodes. My one of my kids is watching it, and uh, it's kind of funny. So that's what I'll I'll throw out there this week. Um, nice. Yeah, we'll put that one on the list. Yeah, Young Sheldon. It's a, it's a different kind of humor for sure. It's a very uh, sort of wise, wise cracking kid. Um, so thanks for being on tonight, Dan. I am going to link all your stuff on the show notes. Uh, podcast website uh your social and again i think your story is inspiring i hope that people can understand you know your success the bedrock of it really was you finding your your sobriety right like none of this would be possible if you didn't have that first part right that stable foundation so um congrats again on 25 years amazing and I hope to cross paths with you again. Yeah. You know, and I will say for anybody out there that's listening, if you are struggling with something, you do, it can seem impossible because when you're in the middle of it, it just doesn't seem possible. Even if you try to think like, I'm not going to do whatever my addiction is, like it's just not possible to think. But you know what? If you want something, anything is possible and your life can be so much better and you really, you know, maybe this isn't exactly the AA theme of it, but you do have the control. Like, literally, picking that drink up and putting it into your mouth is is it, it really is as simple as not picking that drink up and putting it putting it into your mouth. You got to find the right tools and maybe the right support, you know, or or system. But you do not have to be where you are. You can control your life, and life is pretty darn short, so. The time is now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for that leaving thought. That's a good one to end on. Um, everybody, if you could like, subscribe, review, comment, uh, totally appreciate it. It helps get more listeners on the podcast. And we will be here next week. Thanks so much. Thank you.